Welcome, Bookcase Book Nerds. I am Kate Gibson, and I'm, I'm sticking to the Book Nerds thing. I'm sticking to it, and my co-host is... You're not going to let go of it, are you? Uh, I'm Charlie, not. Charlie Gibson here, Kate's father, and <laughs> she refers to me now as my employee. But I welcome you, discerning readers. It's good to have you with us in the bookcase. And today we have a real treat. I think Dave Barry is something of a national treasure. We need humor more and more these days. And Dave Barry has been, I think, one of the funniest Americans around for years and years and years. For those who know him, he wrote a column for the Miami Herald for years and years. He has written a lot of books. The newest one we're going to talk about today is Swamp Story. And Dave writes what I would consider sort of nonsense novels or silly stories. There is a plot. I don't I don't mean to say there's not. It's almost like they're intelligent. I think of them as sort of intelligent Keystone Cop movies, like they're slapstick, <laughs> but they're not sort of Three Stooges slapstick. I think one of the things that fascinated me most about this interview is that he talks about the fact that he's a very careful plotter, that he knows exactly where he's going to go and how he's going to get there, which is interesting because his plots are crazy outlandish, but he creates these situations that are outlandish, but he believes he has to try to make them believable for his <laughs> reader. And that's really important to him. And I want to say, I remember when I was in middle school and I entered a forensics competition, forensics obviously being the art of public speaking, and I made it all the way to the state finals. And most people read Thomas Paine or the Declaration of Independence or the musings of Thomas Jefferson. I read an excerpt from Dave Barry Slept Here, which was a nonsensical take on history. And I think that probably speaks to my childhood and my reading tastes. But as I say, I love his novels. They are carefully constructed nonsense, as dad says, but really fun, laugh out loud nonsense with great dialogue. Yeah, it's outlandish. And as you'll hear in our conversation, I thought it was sort of stream of consciousness that he'd think of something and say, I'll throw that in here. I'll throw that in here. No, he says he wants to get from A to B and he knows how he's going to do it. When you read his novels, you think, no, he's just sort of thinking out loud here and he's thinking funny, which he does. Just to read an excerpt. First of all, I would not ever try to synopsize the plot because it's so crazy and you wouldn't believe it. But he's writing about South Beach in Miami. Yeah. And yeah. there's a place there with a signature drink special. This was the Bongo Mongo Humongo, a 64-ounce concoction of reconstituted fruit juice and enough off-brand vodka, gin, and tequila to anesthetize a water buffalo. Topped off with a generous floater of paint thinner grade rum. The humongo was served in what is basically a small plastic aquarium, which, as the hostess pointed out, you could take home as a souvenir. It was especially popular with underage college students. The humongo cost $49, but with the various taxes, service charges, and traditional South Beach mystery add-ons, the bill could easily double that. The Bongo Monongo business model was built on the assumption that by the time the customers were handed the check, they would be too wasted to read it. Yes. And having partaken of these $40, $50 contraptions when I have caught myself in my own tourist trap, I've always thought, why not just serve the drink in a wagon? Because that way, when you've <laughs> drank it, your friends can just push you home on wheels and it works well that way. But so he does great portraits of of South Beach. And I would argue too, and this is one of the things I love most about Dave Barry, his novels are crazy comedy fun. And one of the ways he gets away with all this craziness is he sets all of his novels in Florida where he lives, which I think also allows him to get away with a certain amount of, well, this could only happen in Florida-isms, which also make up some of the humor and the backbone of his work. One of his lines that I loved was, I've lived in Florida since 1982. I moved there from the United States. <laughs> 
<laughs> but he doesn't belittle Florida. I think he teases Florida. Yeah. And he thinks if he's got a wild point somewhere in his plot, he could just say, well, it's Florida and people will understand it. One of my favorite things is he writes a review every year of the news of the year. People should go and Google his 2022 summation because it's very funny. Dave Barry is funny, as you will find, as we had a conversation with him about his new novel, Swamp Story. Dave Barry, it's good to see you again. It was always a pleasure to talk to you on GMA. I was always tickled by those conversations, and it's good to have you in the bookcase. I want to start by asking what author you would say you most resemble as a writer. Would it be Dostoevsky? Would it be James Joyce? <laughs> would it be Sophocles? Who? Yes. Well, those <laughs> all come up all the time, as you would, would imagine. And, of course, Herman Melville. But, I okay, I don't know that I would ever be so arrogant as to say that I, I write anywhere near as well as this guy did. But my idol and role model when I was just young and, and impressionable and trying to and reading a lot, I'm talking like before high school even, was uh, Robert Benchley. My dad was a big Robert Benchley fan and had all his books and I have them all now. But I remember discovering him. The humor I was reading at that time was like Mad Magazine and comics. And, you know, and I loved all that. When I found this guy who was, you know, from the 20s, from the 30s, and who was considered a, you know, an intellectual member of the Algonquin Roundtable. When I read his columns, I just couldn't get over how wonderful they seemed to me because they were so silly. He was a really, really smart, erudite man, great theater critic, Harvard grad, well-read guy, but he was silly. He would just start in one direction and then just take a complete left turn and never come back to the original idea. Just wonderfully free with his, you know, he, he didn't worry about making a point or anything else, just making you laugh. And that was, I thought, that's what I want to do. That's, I want to write like that. I want to be able to write stuff like that. You knew so early. And was, I'm so glad you mentioned that. I have two autographed Robert Benchley books and my dad knew him. And oh my God. one of them is inscribed to Bud Gibson, who kept us out of war with Turkey. <laughs> <laughs> That is like, okay, I am, I'm going to start signing books. Exactly. That. <laughs> that, but that's so, so Robert Benchley, you know, yeah. that, you know, he, he would take this serious, you know, act of, you know, writing, you know, inscribing a book to somebody and make some insane claim about it. Um, with this, he always did everything with a straight face. I go back and read his stuff now. And a lot of the jokes are very dated. He wrote about the news and, and what was popular on Broadway and in music, and it's all gone now. And so the references don't make that much sense. I still appreciate the rhythm and the skill, but I can see why it would not be popular to anybody picking it up now. But it just reminds you, this was the greatest humorist of his age. Everybody agreed on that before there was Art Bookwalder. This was the guy everybody considered the funniest person there was. And now you wouldn't get the jokes. So it's a good, good lesson to anybody who writes humor. You are temporary. <laughs> well, even more so if you're in television. You're, 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 you're irrelevant the next day. As soon as you're off the air, you know, no, that's not true. We all light candles to you, Charlie. I don't think I've ever had two people make me feel so young uh, in such a short amount of time. So I want to thank you for that. That makes me feel really good about me. I, so I have a question for you because you've got some game, like you've written some stuff. People have heard of you, you know. 
So what I'm wondering is when you're sort of figuring out what you decide to do next, because I want to start talking about this most recent book, Swamp Story. How do you say it's time for me to scratch that fiction itch? Like, how do you know the time has come to sit down and write a story? That's a really good question. And I wish I had a better answer than the one I'm going to give you. I talked to my editor, Priscilla Payton at Simon & Schuster, who's a very smart woman. And it's sort of a combination of what do you feel like writing about, but also what does she think would sell? I had not written any fiction for a while. And I had this idea for a novel and it was at the right time. But there have been times when I've had ideas for novels and Priscilla has read them and said, um, well, I don't think that would be a great idea, you know? And, and then looking back, I'm thinking she was probably right. So kind of go through that process with her. In this case, she liked the idea and I liked the idea. So I went ahead and did the last book I wrote. It was about dogs called Lessons from Lucy. And that was, again, I had a series of ideas. Could I write, could write about this, write about this, write about And one of them was dogs. And she said, yeah, write about dogs. So, you know, it's sort of my idea, but I also want to know that the publisher, the one that's going to invest in it, agrees that it's a good idea. I'm not at the stage of, I never have been at the stage where I can just say, whatever I give you next is what you're going to get. And there are other authors who do that. You can do that. I'm not that. Well, you said this book, Swamp Story, started with an idea for you. There are quite a few absurdist paintings, shall we say, in this book. So I'm interested, what was the original idea? What was the first, what was the spark? What was the first weird thing that came to you? I can tell you exactly. A few years ago, I wrote a book. I live in Florida, I live in Miami. My job, I moved here in 1986 from the United States. That's my job. <laughs> anyway, and so I'm a Floridian, and which is a weird thing to be to begin with. You know, everybody thinks Florida is weird, and, and they're right, it is. And I did a book a few years ago called Best State Ever, which was sort of a tongue in cheek defense of the state of Florida. But really, what I did was just drive around going to old Florida tourist attractions, sketchy roadside attractions, not so much the theme parks that everybody associates with Florida now, but the alligator wrestling. You know, that kind of thing, which are sort of dying off because of the theme parks. But I I went to a bunch of them. And there's one on Route 41, the Tamiami Trail, which is the old road between Miami and Tampa, that is called the Skunk Ape Research Headquarters. (laughs) The Skunk Ape... The skunk ape is kind of like uh, is like the Bigfoot in a, in a sense that it's probably just not real, you know? <laughs> but but people want to believe in it, you know. And anyway, people have claimed to have seen it. And one of the guys who's claimed to have seen it is a guy named Dave Sheely, who operates the Skunk Ape Research Headquarters, which, let's be honest, basically doesn't do a lot of research. It just sells T-shirts to people and and also beer koozies and many, many Skunk Ape related merchandise. And Dave Sheely will, if he's around, tell you about the time he saw the Skunk Ape. There's a lot of weird people out there in the Everglades and, you know, kind of getting by one way or another. And I kind of wanted to use that, use the research headquarters. And then we have an event here in, in Florida that I find hilarious called the Python Challenge. That's a real thing. It's a real thing. Okay. We have Burmese pythons here, too many of them. One of them is too many. <laughs> really, they should be in Burma, but they're wherever that is. They're here. Aren't those the Myanmar pythons now? <laughs> see, see, this man is erudite. You, you actually knew what Burma used, is now called. Um, I, I did not know that. I, I would have guessed like Thailand or something. Anyway, yes. Anyway, they're supposed to be over there. People brought them over here as pets, and then they eventually realized they were living with a python and let it go. And so they're, you know, and they love it here. The pythons and the New Yorkers both love Florida. Not in the pythons case for tax reasons, but because <laughs> evidently it's just really 
It's a good good environment for pythons. So there's hundreds of thousands of them. That's the estimate out there. So the state of Florida, in its effort to control them, has created a python challenge where we invite anybody who wants to, to come down here and kill our pythons if you can find them. But the problem is every year they kill like 200 or 300. They make a big deal out of it, you know, the python challenge. Two or 300 pythons, but a single female python every year lays like 100 eggs. So they're, <laughs> they're clearly winning. The pythons are dis- destroying us in the python challenge. Anyway, so I thought that was pretty funny. And I, I put that in the book. And then just Miami, I've lived in Miami for uh, over 30 years now. And and I love Miami. It's all its weirdness. So I started throwing some Miami characters who are trying to... And anyway, and then the TikTok, which is a f- phenomenon that it fascinates me. I have a 23-year-old daughter who has exposed me to TikTok. She'll show me things and, and like, what is going on on, the, you know, on his phone? <laughs> you know, wait, why is he putting pineapple in the hot water? Wait, what that what is he what is he dancing? What is that how how is he cutting the apple with what? You know, just everything flashing by you and strange things. But it's just like suddenly a person who has taken a 10 second video on the phone can be viewed ultimately by hundreds of millions of people. Just that that fascinates so I thought throw that in there too. TikTok. Anyway, so all those things kind of stewed together to be the basis of the plot. There's a serious genre of stream of consciousness novelists like Virginia Woolf or I guess Faulkner or Proust might be in that that category. And they take the characters' thoughts and feelings as they think them and as they feel them, and they write it down. But I get the feeling, Dave, that you write with your own stream of consciousness, that that without pre-planning, you write it down as you think of it. Oh, oh, this would be fun. And then it goes into the next paragraph. Is that a fair characterization of the way you write? No. No. No, good. I would say no. Oh, good. Uh, I, I, I actually rigorously, believe it or not, plot. And when I'm trying to make the book work, the hardest part for me is like, how will I make this complicated situation happen? And then how will I get everybody out of it in a way that is believable in the context of the book anyway, and have an, an, a resolution that is satisfying to people, the bad guys, the good guys? How can I make all that work? And when I'm doing that, it's not even a remotely stream of consciousness. It's very much, I, I got to do this. But where what you're talking about comes in for me anyway is, uh, okay, in this particular book, there are a group of guys who are trying to create their own version of the skunk ape. They want to create a monster and they use TikTok to do it. They're trying to invent this monster. Unfortunately for them, they smoke a tremendous amount of marijuana, um, <laughs> which means they are generally not really well organized whenever they get, and so where I, where I'll go to that place you're talking about is when I have the meetings of the, the guys who are trying to, they call it the Everglades melon monster. When they're trying to create that, the melon monster videos and figure out what it's supposed to do, they inevitably start by smoking a lot of marijuana, very strong marijuana, and then have these conversations in those conversations, Charles, I do let my mind roam free where, you know, these guys. <laughs> didn't, didn't. now, I am not suggesting for one single solitary second that I know firsthand what it would be like to try to plot something in in that drug addled, addled state. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying that is what I'm my mind is trying to do when I'm writing that dialogue. One of the things I love most about your writing is your timing. And I think that writing timing must be kind of hard. So I guess what I'm asking you is how do you know that it worked? Do you read something aloud to yourself? Do you have a test reader? Like what is your process of saying, am I getting the maximum funny out of this scene that I can get? 
That is a really good question. And kind of the essence of humor writing as opposed to spoken humor is exactly that. The comic, the stand-up comic uses timing you know, good comics, they're all about timing. A good comic can take something that's not funny at all and still make you laugh really hard just by the way he says it. And when you're, you're writing humor, you don't have the advantage. You can't stop the reader. The reader keeps reading at his own pace, whatever. So you have to use either more words or spaces or certain punctuation. You have to figure out a way to get the pauses where you want them to have the emphasis come where you want it. And that's just experience. I wrote a humor column for many, many years. And I, you know, you just learn the techniques for how do you, how do you land a joke? But to answer specifically your question, I don't show it to anybody or read it to anybody. I, because I don't, expect it to be read aloud. But I do read it over and over and over and try it, you know, this way, try it this way till it sounds right in my head and mostly just relying on experience. But that's the hardest part of writing humor, I think, is knowing how to time it, when to stop it and how long the joke should go, when the joke should end. I'm really glad because I had this horrible picture in my head of like, if your wife was your ideal reader, that you would hand her the manuscript <laughs> and then you would sit in a chair across from her and then just kind of go. No. <laughs> um, so that, 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 oh God, that's good. No. That is heavy people. What I do sometimes, and my, my wife, Michelle Kaufman, is a sports writer. She and I work in the same room, which I'm sitting in now. She's not because I'm doing this, but she sits across from me. And I will periodically, once a, every maybe week or so, point to my screen when I'm having just, I'm stuck. And I'll say, is this funny? And she'll look at it across the room. She cannot, of course, read a word from where she's sitting. She'll go, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it's the, That's it's, the extent to which she reads it. Could your novels take place anywhere else other than Florida? I guess, yeah, I could. But I just feel so immersed in Florida these days. I have a very good friend, Carl Hyacin, who's just a fantastic writer, the king of Florida uh, fiction writers. We talk about this all the time, how like to live in this state is to be confronted. If you are, if you write fiction, even nonfiction, if you write anything, is to be confronted just constantly by things you could write about. And you think, I could do a book about that's a pot. You know, I, like once a week, I send Carl something and I say, you know, it's like some straight news item. I say, your characters are loose again. <laughs> people do things here that, you know, just you, you, they cry out for somebody to write them. But I would imagine that's also incredibly freeing as a writer, because if you get yourself in a plot and you're like, how the hell do I get out of this? You're just like, Florida. I mean, does that help you? <laughs> it does. People, people think, I think more of the things are likely to happen in Florida. And they're right. I, I contend there's nothing in this book that I just wrote. Not one single scene that could not happen. Now, <laughs> some of it has, most of it hasn't, but it all could happen. One of Carl's lines is, you don't need an imagination to write about Florida. You just need a subscription to the Miami Herald. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote so many columns when I first got here about things that just, you know, were in the news. Like when I got here, not long after I arrived, a Citizens Crime Watch meeting in Homestead, Florida, where the chief of police was talking to this, you know, inaugural meeting of a Citizens Crime Watch was interrupted by a bale of cocaine falling from the sky. <laughs> a, a smuggler's jet was coming over from the Bahamas and a customs service jet was trying to force it down. And so they're flinging these bales of cocaine out as they were being forced down. And so one of them almost, I, if, I were, if you were to write a novel with a scene where the chief of police of some town is almost killed by falling 
cocaine, the editor would say that's ridiculous. That couldn't happen. But it happened. If you Google Dave Barry, which I did today, I think about the first 711 citations are all (laughs) Dave Barry quotes. Uh, And I'm thinking, hasn't anybody written something that took Dave Barry seriously? <laughs> Has anyone? No. But, you know, a lot of those quotes, it turns out, I didn't say. I have learned over the years. I just about given up trying to correct people. But I get credit for things that I think Mark Twain said. <laughs> like, people read something they think is funny on the internet. And it isn't always even funny, but they'll say, well, that's probably Dave. And they put Dave Barry. And then it gets out on the internet and you can never get it off. Right, right. Before we end this, I do want to ask about one line. And I think that I found on the internet. I think it was on your website. Barry once set fire to a pair of underpants with a Barbie doll on national television. There isn't any word in that sentence except for Barry, maybe, that doesn't need explaining. There's this thing called Rollerblade Barbie that Mattel (laughs) manufactured. She was a regular Barbie, but she had a pair of rollerblades on. And the front rollerblade was just a polyurethane wheel. But the rear wheel was a sparking wheel, like on a lighter. <laughs> so when you roll rollerblade Barbie along, she shot sparks out. Whoever thought that up is now working in Mattel's Ukrainian <laughs> division. And what happened was this woman wrote in and said, my two daughters were playing beauty shop with my three-year-old son and they had sprayed some hairspray and when they had rollerblade Barbie and one of them, they set his underpants on fire and like, and I'm thinking, why? And then I turn, okay, you could with hairspray, which is flammable. So anyway, I went out into my own driveway and sprayed hairspray on a pair of underpants to set a pair of, on fire with a rollerblade Barbie doll, which disturbed my neighbors. And if you think, by the way, it's easy to explain why you're squatting over a pair of burning underpants in your driveway holding a Barbie doll in your hand, you're, you don't know much about investigative journalism. But anyway, <laughs> I wrote a column about that, about that you could do that. And then David Letterman show called them and said, we want you to come do that on the show. And so I did. I went on. <laughs> I guess my, probably my... Uh, most lasting achievement. I think it speaks, by the way, to you read about a consumer, you know, a ridiculous consumer accident. It, your first thing is, go, well, that's that's terrible. That's just, it's like, hey, let me see if I can recreate this. <laughs> I bet I can. I bet I can. Some, the first rule of comedy writing is anything bad that happens is good. You know, it's <laughs> good. Yeah. Exactly. I, I, you know, some guy thinks he's created cold fusion and scientists will go out and try to re- try to duplicate his findings. But you're out there seeing if Barbie's underpants can actually be set on fire. I think that's... I also showed that you could ignite a Pop-Tart and turn it into essentially a flamethrower if, if you put it, <laughs> leave it in the toaster too long. So another thing I did investigative journalism on. It is testament to your investigative journalism chops. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Dave Barry. Thanks very much. The book is Swamp Story. It is... It, it is. It's just a fun read. You you have no idea where he's going to go with this. And and yet there he goes. And I am I am humbled to realize how much of this book actually is based on based on true facts in Florida. Yeah. Thank you ever so much. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Yeah, this was fun. Hey, grownups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. 
Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Wondery Kids Plus on Apple Podcasts today. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. The Girlfriend is a free weekly e-newsletter from AARP built on the belief that girlfriend power is everything. It offers stories for Gen X women related to sex, health, beauty, travel, and money. Whether it's a shoulder to cry on or help navigating the next phase of your life, visit thegirlfriend.com to subscribe. You can also join the Girlfriend Book Club, a closed Facebook group that hosts live author interviews and free book giveaways. Again, it's thegirlfriend.com, because everybody needs a girlfriend. And some rapid-fire questions for Dave Barry. Favorite humor writer? Well, that would be Robert Benchley, but also I love P.G. Woodhouse very much. Yeah, sure. Modern, still around humor writer would be Carl Hyacin, my good buddy and fellow Floridian. Funniest book you ever read? Well, I was going to say Catch-22 because at the time I thought that was the funniest book I ever read, but I haven't read it in 30 or 40 years. So it might not still be funny. So I'm going to go with the Brothers Karamazov. I never (laughs) finished it. (laughs) I never finished it. I was supposed to read it for college. I was an English major and I got maybe, I don't know, a third of the way through it. And I figured it, it was so it was so incredibly boring as far as I got. It must pick up later in the end and be just hilarious. Otherwise, it wouldn't be popular the way it is. <laughs> Actually, I'm, I'm guessing nobody's ever finished The Brothers. I bet you Dostoevsky never finished The Brothers. Probably the last 50 <laughs> pages are blank. <laughs> nobody's checked. In the last few years, has reality become funnier than comedy? I don't think it has so much as that we are more aware of it now, that we're exposed to so much more reality than we used to because of the internet. You know, anytime anybody does anything really stupid or weird, it is now on somebody's phone. And people are doing things deliberately stupid and weird to get on the phone and get on TikTok and Instagram and so on. I think people have always, reality has always been pretty weird. I just think we're much, it's more vivid to us now just because we, it's sort of shoved in our face constantly because of the internet. The recently departed and a dear man who I thought was wonderful, Mark Russell. Oh, my God. I was doing an interview with him and he said, you know, some politicians are God's gift to humorous. <laughs> he said in this interview, I, I thank God every day for Richard Nixon. Are there any on the current horizon about whom you feel that way? I love Mark Russell and I miss Mark Russell. He was just a wonderful human being. As for, OK, the obvious answer to your question would be Mr. Trump. The problem with Mr. Trump is he's so you know, ludicrously overexposed that there's no room around it to make him, to exaggerate him or to make him, there are like at least 
200 comedians who can do really spot on Donald Trump impersonation. So there's nothing, you know, mm. and this is almost impossible to tell the difference between them and him because everything he says is kind of ridiculous. So, you know, I guess I want to say he's he's funny, and, and I, but I feel like I'm, I'm overexposed to him now. So how about if I just take the whole rest of the United States government? There's a famous quote, dying is easy, but comedy is hard. Is it? I haven't died yet, but I can't <laughs> imagine it's any harder than comedy. No, I'm going to go with comedy. Is uh, Comedy is hard, I think. You know, the reason I say that is if I wrote an op-ed about what to do about the Middle East or about Federal Reserve Board setting the interest rate, if that's the topic, I can write this whole long thing and people can read it and kind of nod and some will agree and some will disagree. Some will think I know what I'm talking about and some will be persuaded. But if I write and it says at the top, humor, Everybody who reads it gets to decide, yeah, no. You know, you're telling the reader, here, this is the reaction. You're going to laugh at this. They either do or they don't. You can't get around it. So in that sense, I think humor writing is the hardest kind of writing because it promises a result. And no other kind of writing that I know of does. If I weren't a writer, I would be... Oh, obviously a male underwear model. <laughs> or a female underwear model. I don't care. As long as I get to wear, you know, underwear. Yeah, excellent. And not a bass guitarist in a uh, in a really great rock band? Oh, I am a guitarist in a terrible rock band. It's called <laughs> the Rock Bottom Remainders. It's a band of authors. We play our, our genre, Roy Blunt Jr. described as hard listening music. Um, <laughs> we're not good. We, we, uh, other bands, we have been told, practice the songs ahead of time. And we're busy, busy authors. So we don't have time to do that. So we play, we'll play a, a gig and then afterward we'll go, we should have practiced some of those. Songs. <laughs> I think that's the only thing separating us from like the Beatles is practice. And a final question. We stole it from Stephen Colbert, but it's always, I think, illustrative. In five words, what would you like the rest of your life to be? Continued immaturity followed by death. <laughs> you got it. That's you great. Got it. You got it. He is a delight to talk to, Kate. He really is fun. And as I mentioned, I think he's as fine a humorist as we have in this country right now. Oh, I'm jealous of anybody that can make humor look that easy. He is offhandedly, brilliantly funny. Even the lines, I think sometimes that he doesn't mean to be funny are funny. And I just, I loved talking to him. He was everything that I hoped he would be. As I say, he was a, a humorous hero of mine from childhood. And so when you get on and I just love that he is as funny as his writing is. Well, first of all, he's in his 70s now. He hasn't lost any of, as you'll hear in his coda at the end of this podcast, he relishes the fact that in his own mind, I think he's still in his 30s <laughs> and he has a puckish sense of humor, uh, just a wonderful view on things. I mentioned that people should go Google his summation of the year 2022. I just wrote down one part that I loved, just one of the he does it month by month by month. And just one of his things, cryptocurrencies, which appeal to investors because the cryptocurrency market is not controlled by the government. Instead, it's actually run by an 18 year old, Justin Weeblemonger of Teaneck, New Jersey, who runs the whole shebang out of his PlayStation 5. And then in parentheses, <laughs> Justin also controls airfares. <laughs> it is it's just a. Oh, an offbeat view of life. And by the way, I can sort of picture what Justin would look like. I can picture what Justin would look like. I'm just saying that. He, but I, I love talking to Dave and I love reading his books. He's just a wild ride of fun and a terrific to talk to. 
And we spent so much time talking about whether Dave's books could occur in any other state but Florida that we thought that we would be completely remiss in not talking to a Florida independent bookstore. So we went to revisit Mitchell Kaplan, one of our favorite booksellers in Florida, the owner of Books and Books, and we talked to him on Independent Bookseller Day. So here is our conversation with Florida bookseller Mitchell Kaplan. Mitchell Kaplan is joining us from the cafe and his bookstore, Books and Books, in the uh, Miami area. And it is really good to have you back with us. Happy Independent Booksellers Day. We're talking on Independent Booksellers Day. How do you celebrate? Do you have uh, you have balloons and hats and horns and, and interpretive dancers in the store? The idea is to individualize each one of your stores and present it as you see fit, but at the same time, celebrate the fact that indie bookstores are alive and well and present a very, very important role in their community. So to that end, we have done as an organization, as the American Bookseller Association, there's Independent Bookstore Day swag only for Independent Bookstore Day, uh, special uh, short stories, a coloring book, and then each store does their own thing. Like we've had these buttons that we've created that say censorship leaves you in the dark. We've created special t-shirts, tote bags. And then since we have a cafe, we're also doing a beer tasting with some local breweries. We also have tonight an amazing reading with the poet Marilyn Chin. And then in our cafe, we also have music happening. So it's just a way of celebrating. We have, we do have balloons. <laughs> I don't have noisemakers, which probably that's a great idea. Next year, we're going to have noisemakers. Because <laughs> nothing says, nothing says poetry reading like a good noisemaker. We're pairing you in this episode with Dave Barry, whose novels... I think sort of exposed some of the quirkiness. He does a great job of teasing Florida. And so what I wanted to ask you, I wanted, we felt like we had to talk to a Florida bookstore. This is our 41st year of bookselling. I think I've known him for each one of those 41 years. I knew that Dave Barry was a thing. When I invited him, he came to the Miami Book Fair for the very first time. He wasn't living in Miami at the time, <laughs> but he was writing for the Miami Herald. And there was an announcement that went out on the PA that Dave Barry will be speaking, and I swear, like 10,000 people tried to <laughs> enter to go into that room. And he's very close friends with Carl Hyacin, and, and the two of them together paint a picture, unfortunately, a very accurate picture of Miami to do it all. In fact, we presented him, his very first event on this tour was <laughs> a great Miami event. We partnered with this group that is building a very large, beautiful high-rise on Miami Beach. They had a beautiful space that was part of their sales center. They wanted to see if we could present something with them. And we presented Dave, and it was great. <laughs> I mean, Dave was a riot. I mean, he said, look, if you buy a book, you also get a free condo. Isn't that a great deal? So buy a book, and you get a free condo. <laughs> We're always interested in what independent booksellers are finding that perhaps are not so well known. And you told us you had a book that you really have fallen in love with. Everyone's going to hear about it soon. It's one of these word of mouth things mm -hmm. where it's a first novel, so there's no name brand. It's called Go is a River, written by Shelley Reed. Shelley is 
in her 50s or late 50s, and it's the first novel that she's written. She's taught literature for years and years in Western Colorado, and uh, it takes place in Western Colorado in a small town, kind of like Crested Butte, maybe, in that area. And it takes place in the 40s, where it's, it focuses at first on a young girl who is taking care of this very dysfunctional family right after World War II, made up mostly of men, her brothers, her father. And they own a peach farm. And then the Gunnison River is about to be dammed. And as the Gunnison River is dammed, this town is going to be drowned, which happened to a lot of these Western mm, towns. Mm-hmm. And so in the process, in the process of all that happening, she falls in love with a Native American drifter who comes into town that her family is not able to really process properly. And so it's a really enthralling wonderful, wonderful novel that, but I think it's, it's got the goods, you know, so. Florida is a quirky state and it's in the headlines right now uh, for a lot of different things. What is the role of a Florida bookseller in the debate about censorship right now? You know, we have to take a very prominent role. I mean, government is not yet trying to censor what goes on in bookstores themselves. But when government tries to censor what's happening in schools and libraries, that has a direct effect and a chilling effect on the entire reading community. I can tell you stories about what's happening in the public schools right now that would put your hair standing on end, where public schools are so confused by these laws. You know, where in the old days we would just invite an author into the school and they would accept the author. They're now wanting to vet that author. They're wanting to read all the author's work. It's at uh, book fairs. The school system is not are not allowing children to go to various school book fairs unless the parents sign a hold harmless agreement against the school. A really interesting kind of thing that's happening that you probably read about is in 1970, Judy Bloom came out with the book, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. At that time, it was all of these right-wing organizations, people like Anita Bryant, Phyllis Shaffley, who were trying to keep that book down. The difference today is the censorship is coming from the state, which is true censorship. So you've got the governor, you've got mayors, you've got school boards. They're the ones who are trying to get these books challenged and removed. And for me, that's extremely scary. And the film is coming out now. And in the state of Florida, with this new law that has now been expanded, teachers are not allowed to talk about a girl's menstrual cycle or periods in the school. And so this this movie is coming out. I can imagine a 14-year-old girl goes to this movie, who comes in and wants to talk about it with her teacher. What's going to happen? You know. So we as booksellers and me as a citizen in the world, we need to push back against it. Do you alter your inventory in any way based on what's going on politically? As a book gets banned, do you stock more of them? Do sales increase? Right now, the number one banned book is a, band, a book called Gender Queer, and it's one of our best-selling books. Huh. It's just, you know, kids, you know, we all know from those of us 
like, like you, Charlie, and me have lived a long time, we know that you can't ban things and expect them to go away. Mm. We're not a political bookstore, so we present books of all sides. Do we have Ron DeSantis' book in the store? Yes, we do. We have uh, Cal Thomas's book in the store? Yes, we do. So we have books from everybody. This podcast is non-political as well, but the one thing we really do believe in is you cannot ban books. It is too frightening, and you, your words are well said. Mitchell, thank you very much. Thanks ever so much. Yes, thank you. And happy Independent Booksellers Day. Thank you. Can I say one thing, though, before we go? Sure. Sure. You know, I've been listening to your podcast, and I think what both of you are doing is really, it's so wonderful. I mean, you know, when I talk about Dave being a partner, I feel like you're a partner in this this crazy literary world of ours, and your contribution to it has been enormous. So I want to thank you. Thank you. That means a lot. You're very kind. You're very kind. Important words, I think, from Mitchell Kaplan. Kate and I have discussed the fact that we try to keep this podcast apolitical because the country is so divided and we don't want to get into all that other than to say the country is divided and isn't that a shame. But the one issue that we do feel so strongly about is the banning of books because people should be able to read and read and read. You know, for me, one of the things that made me a reader was you would buy us anything when we were growing up. You would buy us anything at a bookstore. And so I remember pushing that boundary and handing you, I think it was Christine by Stephen King when I was in like, ah, like the fourth or the fifth grade. And through gritted teeth, I think, honest (laughs) to God, if I bought you a bodice ripper romance or Christine by Stephen King, I'm not sure which one of those you would have preferred at that age, but you through gritted teeth, you bought me that book. And I then read everything that he's ever written. My free access to books made me a reader. I think it is okay for a parent to say this book is not appropriate for my child. I think that's completely fair. The line that I don't understand that gets crossed is then this book is not appropriate for anybody. That line is the one that I think is not political and is worth calling out and is one that I don't understand. Yes. As he said, which I think is interesting, when a book gets banned or when it gets controversial, its sales increase. (laughs) That it actually has the opposite effect of what book banners are trying to achieve. Anyway, this is a theme that we will... I think, get back to a number of times. We want to tell you who makes this uh, podcast possible. And then at the end, a a coda. A closing deep thought. A closing (laughs) deep thought from Dave Barry. (laughs) The Bookcase with Kate and Charlie Gibson is a production of ABC Audio, produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCan Productions. Brenda Salinas-Baker is our senior producer. Laura Mayer is our executive producer, and we give special thanks to Josh Cohan, Elizabeth Russo, Nania McLean, and Cameron Shertavian. My mom used to say, my mom was very funny. She'd go, Davey? She's Davey. She called me Davey. Davey, it's better to be rich and healthy than poor and sick. (laughs) 